The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So the sanctity of life, primarily I'm going to focus in on uh, the, the dignity of life, the value of life, the sacredness of human life from God's point of view, which he has articulated forever in his word, the Bible. So we're going to look to the scriptures, see what God has to say about human life. So that's our point of emphasis, also relative to abortion. And then we have the Walk for Life coming up in a little more than a month here in our own area. And early on, for the first five years or so here at GBF, we promoted and, and sponsored the Walk for Life. thought it was a worthwhile uh, ministry to be a part of. And then a couple of the key people that were spearheading that for us, they just ended up moving uh, to a different area. But we just thought it would be good to be reminded of the Walk for Life and what it's all about and also from God's Word. And so I have a guest, guest I want to introduce, and it's Becky. Becky, why don't you come on up here? And Becky Morales is from, she works for what is called Real Options, which used to be the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and then they changed their name to Real Options. And Becky, I'm going to go ahead and give you the microphone there. Thank you. Here at, our, here at our church, they call this the hugging zone. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And, and the handshake zone. But you can stand right here. Come on over. Come on over. Have you here. Um, so I've had a delightful time talking with Becky and learning about what she does in her ministry. And so I just got a few questions for Becky. And that's going to kind of be a commercial for Real Options and their ministry and, and what they do. And, and as a resource that's available for the Christian community and even beyond the Christian community. So some of you, if you are familiar with Real Options, can you just raise your hand where you are? Because some of you might be familiar. Go ahead and put your hand down. Good. Those of you not familiar with, with Real Options, raise your hand. So about half and half. So this is good uh, to get the word out. Um, so Becky, first, the correct pronunciation of your last name. That'll be the first question. Morales. I am not Mexican. I know I'm, I'm very, very white person. I married a Mexican man. Yes. Okay. So did, so did my daughter. Oh. Yeah. Congratulations. God made us all. Yes, he did. In his image. <laughs> um, so, Becky, why don't you start with, first of all, tell, how did you learn about our church briefly? Grace Bible Fellowship of the Silicon Valley. This is a great story, actually. Um, a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to speak at a church, and it was on my Google Calendar, and in a rush, I typed in grace, and I came to your church, and I set up a table in the back, and um, someone... And I, didn't, and I didn't invite you to speak. Anyway, no. keep going. He just ruined the story for me, but actually, he, I came in, and I set up, and then Pastor Bob, bless his heart, he came up to me and we started talking and I said, I'm here to speak and he's like, you're not on the schedule. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, sweat started pouring down. I'm like, I'm at the wrong church. So I actually started packing things up and, and then I gave my quick spiel to Pastor Bob. One in three have had an abortion. We saved over a thousand lives. And, and he's like, why don't you come back? So... God works everything for good. Amen. And that Amen. is why I am Amen. here. Yes. That is a true story. That's true awesome. True story, yes. And then Bob connected me with Becky, and we just have had a delightful interaction and conversation. Um, and I just got some questions for Becky just so she can inform us. What, what is Real Options? We had 
55 hands that just went up. Real Options is a pregnancy clinic. Um, it's for families who are not sure if they would um, like to keep their baby or not, um, and they're in trouble. We actually are a life-affirming clinic, and we, but we want people to come who are abortion-vulnerable um, because um, we want people to choose life. And so uh, we, we have a, an incredible process that we do when women, families that come in, and we give them help, we give them support, and 90% um, of all patients that come in choose life. So say a young woman gets pregnant, didn't want to, she's afraid, scared, whatever, hiding it, and then how much does it cost to go visit your clinic? It is free. It's free, okay. Um, do you have... What, do you have Christians that work there? Yes, yes, people who love Jesus. Yes. Okay, and do you, ha do you provide practical help for, yes. for these young women? Yes. Give me an example. For example, do, you do, do they do sonograms or anything? Well, how it works is a, a woman will come in, and, and they'll be like, I think I'm pregnant or, or something like that. And so we, what we, we, we have this process. We go, well, how far along do you think you are? And do you know if your pregnancy is viable? And then they'll be like, uh, usually because they're so broken, you know, they'll be like, I, I don't know. And they're like, well, why don't you come in? And 25% um, of pregnancies end in miscarriage. So we want to make sure that you have, you may not even need an abortion. And also, um, if you have any kind of STI or STD, then if you have an abortion while you have that, you may get pelvic inflammatory disease. So why don't you come in? We'll see how far along you are, and we'll go from there. We want you to have all your options available to you. Does your center ever provide ultrasounds or those kind of things? Yeah, so actually they come in, they do pregnancy tests, and while they're waiting for the pregnancy test, they go into um, an advocate room, and they just, they just talk. It's not like you should go and choose life. It's nothing like that, because majority of women are, come from incredibly broken relationships, circumstances, um, and so the, the advocate just talks to them and gives them all their options. And then they'll be like, well, they'll be like, you know, looks like you are pregnant. But why don't you go in? We'll, why don't you do an ultrasound? We can see how far along you are. And then they'll bring them in. They'll do an ultrasound. They see the baby up on the screen. They see the heartbeat. They choose life. Are you federally funded by the United States government to the tune of $10 million with all the taxpayers' money? I wish. No. Okay. So you are strictly dependent upon uh, giving? Yes. Yes. But the crazy thing about it is 92% of all our funds are not by churches. They're by individuals. Only 8% of our funds are through churches. Okay. This is off script, this next question. Yes, so if you don't know the answer, that's fine. But, I like off um, So you're familiar with Planned Parenthood and their clinics? Yes, I'm that's, very familiar. Okay. Um, do you know if Planned Parenthood provides practical care like ultrasounds for those who come in? Well, yes. Actually, they do. But when you come in, they turn the screen so you don't look at the ultrasound. Okay. I was told they don't. Um, they do. do they? they do. Okay. From experience, yes. Okay. Um, and so that leads me to my next question. 
and that is how did you get involved in Real Options? That is a great question. Um, actually, um, I grew up in a Christian home, and um, I actually, uh, right in my early 20s, I had two abortions before I met my wonderful husband, Ernie Morales, who's a pastor at Trinity Church in Sunnyvale. Um, and a friend heard about it, and she told me about a three-day retreat for people who have had any kind of pregnancy loss. And honestly, I did not want to go. I thought that was lame. I already had enough healing. And um, he dragged me there, and it rocked my world. Rocked my world so much, I'm like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So actually, right after the retreat, I started volunteering. I started taking time out of my, from my family and just started doing that and volunteering. I, started, I volunteered for these retreats for three years. And um, after that, that's a whole other God story. I started working for Real Options, and now I'm here. Amen. Were you a Christian when you had your abortions? Yes, an unsurrendered Christian. One in three women have an abortion by 45. But right now, 65% of Christians who self-identify themselves as a Christian are having an abortion in, in California right now. So that means statistically over half of us in this room have had an abortion. So there are more Christians right now having an abortion than non-Christians. So when you had your abortion, you knew it was wrong. And was there guilt? Yes. But you got to understand that, and I know a lot of women out there are like this. I was broken. I didn't have people around me that spoke life into me. And that was a choice, a horrible choice I made. But, but, there's always a but. There's a good but in this. Like, for instance, I would not be here speaking to you if I hadn't had the abortions. And, by mistake, I came and set up that table in the back. And God worked it out for good. So I went through one mistake to get to another mistake to get to here. Only God makes things turn out for good. Amen. Sorry. Amen to that. You're, you're preaching, and I didn't I invite you to preach. Um, <laughs> and do you think you're going to see those two babies in heaven someday? Of course. Of course. That's what do you have? Do you have names for them? I do. I do have names for them, yes. That's awesome. Yeah. There will be, you will be reunited in heaven. Can't wait, yes. That is the good news. That's another Romans 8, 28 thing. Amen, amen. Yes. Fantastic. And then finally, uh, Becky's going to be available at, after church in the back table. Please go talk to her. Yes. Are, are you, is your clinic open to people coming to volunteer to like uh, fold blankets and take out the trash and do stuff in the clinic? Yes, but really our biggest volunteer is for church ambassadors and nurses. That is a huge thing for okay. us right now, volunteer. I was asking because my daughter did that when she was a teenager. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Went into the clinic there and helping out. And yeah. Just did learn about the ministry. Yeah. Had an impact in her life forever. It's incredible. Yep. That's the great thing about volunteering. You can't really get the dynamics unless you volunteer or serve. It, it, it's a healing process alone just doing that. So. so where is your clinic? Where do you serve? I serve at the Alameda. We have four clinics in the Bay Area, um, but I serve at the Alameda. Okay, clinic. four in the Bay Area. Where are they? Uh, one on White Road in East San Jose, and then we got the, the one on the Alameda, and then we have one on San Antonio Road in Mountain View, and we just opened one in Union City. Union City. And who heads up the one in Mountain View? Do you know her name? No. Heidi okay. Lalonde. Okay, I'm not sure. I, I thought I had met her. So anyway, yeah. so there's four. 
Look at, and then our last question for you, Becky, is how can we pray specifically for you in the ministry? Um, I always pray this prayer, and this is what I encourage you to all pray. Um, I, I pray that we take over the Planned Parenthoods because we strategically are located next to it. So when I always walk by it, I always pray, Father, I pray you grant the repentance for those that don't know. These people that are in Planned Parenthood believe that they're doing a good thing. They're just blinded. So we just pray that God would grant them repentance and that all the people that are going into Planned Parenthood would come to us. Mm. And that's what I always pray for. So, yeah. We're going to start praying with you Amen. about that very specific thing. Amen. I said the last question was the last question, but it wasn't. Okay. Bring it. Um, so I had another one uh, regarding your ministry, praying for you. Oh, I would imagine that all the local pastors here in Northern California are just excited and enthusiastic and supportive of you and speaking out uh, against abortion and speaking up for Walk for Life and just want to do everything they can publicly and privately to help you, right? I would, right? Isn't that true? No, that's not true, Pastor Cliff. No, sadly. Well, can you explain that in a sentence or two? What the reality is then? Or what the stats are? Yes. Yes. You guys are a rare church, actually, for it to let me come in on an accident. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, majority of pastors believe that uh, speaking about life at conception is more of a political thing than a moral thing. So, majority of churches do not want to speak about it at all. So, the majority of Churches that you know of, which means past majority of pastors that you know of, are kind of, this is a hot potato not to be touched in this forum behind the pulpit. Well, they believe that it's right, and we should speak about it. They just don't want to speak about it like you here. Okay, like from the pulpit, like Correct. I'm about to do. Correct. Okay, because that's what I'm going to do. Amen. I can't wait. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray for Becky and the ministry. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for being the creator the Savior, the Sustainer, the Judge. Yes. And we thank you for being a God of truth and giving that truth to us through your word and through the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Spirit of truth. And we want your truth to be exalted this day. We pray that you would honor Becky's prayer and so many others that are praying, that they have been praying for their ministry, but also for those uh, who have a need, who are indeed blinded. Yes. Um, and we just entrust them to you. Continue to use her in the four clinics in our area. Uh, to bless the souls of many, to set many free, and to honor you. We commit them to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's Amen. hear it for Becky. Amen. All right, well, let's get right to it. So that gives us about 30 minutes to just do a survey on the sanctity of life. This, I mean, there's a lot you can say about the sanctity of life because the sanctity of life isn't just about abortion. Uh, the sanctity of life plays into issues like capital punishment, euthanasia, and so many other things, even the quality of life and the caste system that certain religions and philosophical worldviews have. So, But we're just going to focus in on one of those areas, and that's the sanctity of life from God's point of view as related to abortion and particularly relative to what's going on in our country today, not the world, but specifically here in the United States of America and so that's where we're going to go. I'm going to give you some scriptures there. We'll move quickly, uh, again, focusing on this truth. Also with the understanding that in a congregation of 200 plus people, statistically speaking, Becky just reminded us 
of the reality that no doubt there are probably here some who have had an abortion. There are probably some who have considered having an abortion. There are probably some of the guys here, the men, who have been involved with a woman who had an abortion and they were a part of the process and the decision making. Uh, I realize with that sometimes comes a tremendous amount of guilt. So my, I'm not, I have no intention whatsoever of making anybody feel guilt, guilty. And so if I come down hard, I just want to be true to Scripture and be as objective as possible. And we, we're all sinners. We all have feet of clay. We all stumble, as the Bible says. And there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but there's only forgiveness in Jesus Christ and knowing him personally in his glorious gospel. So with that up front, just know that we're just trying to do an objective study of God's word. So we know God's perspective and point of view on this matter. So to bring some of you up to speed by way of education briefly as an introduction, some of you might not be aware of the law here in California. But in 1973, when the United States was almost 200 years old as a nation, there had been court cases at the lower level debating and disputing the issue of the right to have an abortion. And then it got elevated to the Supreme Court where there are nine judges appointed for life here in America who are supposed to make decisions regarding what the Constitution says. That is their only job. They're not supposed to invent laws, and they do, but they're supposed to just interpret the Constitution. So the court case that was familiar or infamous is now called Roe versus Wade. And it was a landmark decision issued in 1973 by the United States Supreme Court on the issue of the constitutionality of laws that criminalized or restricted access to abortions. The Supreme Court ruled seven to two, seven in favor of abortion, two against. Majority rules. Supreme Court ruled seven to two that a right to privacy under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment extended to a woman's decision to have an abortion. So for the first time in the history of the United States, abortion on demand, abortion without restrictions, was legalized here in America. That's what it's come to be called, abortion on demand. And then there's been all kinds of follow-up court cases to define and redefine the implications and other nuances of the ruling. But basically today, it's here in America, a woman can have abortion for any reason on demand, going past even being 20 weeks pregnant, even way beyond 20 weeks, to the point of fetal viability, quote, end quote, whatever that is. And so with that, since 1973, on average, since 1973 up until here, 2018, one million babies have been killed in an abortion here in America as a result of that law. One million. That, that is staggering. Do the math. 60 million babies killed in abortion since then. There, there isn't a country in the world save China that even comes close to that. China, the atheistic, communistic, humanistic, anti-Christian country. 60 million since 1970. Think about 60 million. That's bigger than the population of Canada. 
bigger than the population of Texas. It's amazing, 60 million people, an entire generation and a half of people whose lives have been snuffed out. 60 million, that's more than any world war or war we've ever known in history, including World War II. Sad. And the leading judge who wrote the majority opinion back then in 1973 was a self-professed Republican appointed by a, appointed by a so-called conservative president. So we are going to talk about the sanctity of life. We are going to talk about abortion this morning. And once again, you know, the world would have us say that, well, you Christians, you can't really talk about abortion from the pulpit because it's a political issue. It's not a spiritual issue or a biblical issue. That, that is a lie. Because when you're talking about abortion, you're talking about life. You're talking about the definition of what a human being is. And that intersects with the Bible because God is creator. That is clear. God is the creator. There's no doubt about that. So the Bible is very clear on this issue. This is not ambiguous. This is not a gray area. This is not even up for debate or dispute from a biblical point of view. And that's what my, I want to show you that clearly this morning. I, I, could, go, I could do a five-week series on this. So this is just going to be an overview. With the point of emphasis being the life in the womb is a person. So that's my thesis. The life in the womb is a person. And God is the giver of life. Notice I didn't say the fetus in the womb or the blob or the protoplasm or the several other names they use to neuter the idea of personality trying to manipulate our thinking and our emotions and our psychology, make us become seared in our conscience and numb in our emotions and thinking. So here's the premise. The life in the womb is a person. And God is the giver of life. Let's go ahead and look at the scriptures and see what the Bible has to say in these eight points of overview here. Point number one is that Simply, God created everything. We've got to lay the foundation. Uh, and this is no small point. Actually, this is absolutely foundational because this is the clash of worldviews. This is where it starts. Genesis 1.1, God created everything. That is all throughout the Bible. Genesis 1, that's how the Bible starts out, the very first verse in your Bible. In the beginning, God, it assumes God is real. He exists. He doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. And it says his very nature. He is a creator. And that's what he did in the very beginning. He created all things. And all of creation is apart from him, uh, distinct from him. He's not a part of creation. He's totally separate of creation. He is totally over and sovereign over creation. God created the heavens and the earth. That means everything. And that is reiterated all throughout the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. Not only is he the creator, he's not a creator. He's the creator of all things. As a result, because God is the creator of all things that exist in the heavens and on earth, he is also sovereign over all things. Sovereign means he has absolute, total, 100% control of all things. Nothing can resist his will. What God wants, he gets. And he's a holy God. He's a holy, sovereign God, but he's totally Sovereign over all things. So he's sovereign over all of life, including all of human life, and everything entailed in that. Psalm 115, verse 3. Beautiful verse and wonderful summary. The psalmist says, but our God is in the heavens. 
our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God is sovereign. You've got to start there. That is foundational to our worldview. That's what sets the biblical worldview apart from every other worldview. And in your debate and your thinking about abortion, you've got to start here. What is your view of God? Stephen Hawking died in the last week. Uh, the world is just touting him as the smartest man who was alive at the time at the point of his death uh, at age 76. World-renowned physicist. Oh, what a great man. Oh, what a smart man. Oh, what a brilliant man. And he was always lauded for decades for being such a wonderful, amazing, and the most intelligent human being on planet Earth. Well, that is not the assessment of the Bible based on his many years of teaching, speaking, writing. We know what he thinks. We know what he taught. He wrote best-selling books even as recently as uh, 2010 and beyond. And in interviews that he's done repeatedly, and even in recent interviews, 2011, uh, the book that he wrote in 2010, he, just, he stated what his view of God was. Quote, God is not necessary, end quote. The brilliant physicist Stephen Hawking. That, that is not brilliant. That is foolish. That's, those aren't my words. It's the word of the Bible. The Bible says the one who does not believe in God is a fool. God is not necessary. Another quote. What's your view of the afterlife? Quote, the afterlife is a fairy tale. Fairy story. End quote. There is no afterlife. You die and you go into non-existence. The human brain is simply nothing more than a computer. When the computer stops functioning, it just ceases to exist. That was his worldview that he propagated and taught and influenced millions of people with that worldview. That is at odds at the foundational level of Genesis 1-1. God created everything. Number two, God created all things, and then Genesis 1 goes on, and all humans are made in God's image. So God created the world literally in six days. He started with the earth. He fashioned the earth. He created creatures and things that crawl on the ground. He created plants. Then he created animals, and then at the end of that week, he saved the best for last, and that was humanity. Humanity was totally distinct from all that God had created, even distinct from angels. And then God said to himself in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. In other words, let us make humanity in our image. Now that we've made animals and plants and all those things, we will make a special creature, and it will be made in our image. It's going to be different. Human beings are made in God's image. They reflect the very image of God. They reflect characteristics and attributes about Almighty God in some way. Therein lies the inherent value, worth, dignity, sanctity, sacredness of the human soul because we are made in God's image. Every human being born into this world, every human being conceived in the womb is made in God's image. Every human being conceived in the womb is therefore sacred before God. He is the author of their life. He has sovereign control over every human life. From the time life begins at conception, because every human being is made in God's image. It doesn't matter if they're male or female. It doesn't matter if they have distorted chromosomes that can be seen while early on in the womb. And many people would say, that's a worthless life, let it be discarded. It doesn't matter if they're born with all kinds of disabilities and ailments. They are precious in God's eyes because every one of them was made in the image of God. They have inherent value dignity, and worth. That is the biblical worldview. That is the only worldview that represents what God thinks about humanity. No other religion or philosophy on planet earth holds to that view, the biblical view that every human soul is made in God's image. It needs to be treated accordingly with respect, with dignity, even unbelievers, even the worst of unbelievers. 
according to the guidelines of Scripture. So all human beings are made in God's image. Uh, let's go on to, oh, I want to read Ezekiel 18, one of the implications of this. So fast forward thousands of years in the Old Testament. God is talking in Ezekiel 18. He's speaking through his prophet. And he's talking about how he has made every soul. Every human being, every soul, every son, every daughter, every father, every mother belongs to me, says God. God, the author of life. It's an amazing chapter, Ezekiel 18. And God says this, behold, listen up. This is the truth. He has to say behold because people aren't listening. He has to say behold because people are undermining this basic truth about the value of human life. Behold, listen up. This is the truth. I'm God Almighty speaking. Behold, all souls are mine. There it is. All souls are mine. There is no such thing as an unwanted pregnancy. It's one of their phrases. Well, we only terminate unwanted pregnancies. Really? Who determines an unwanted pregnancy? God said all souls are mine. All souls are made in his image. All souls are given life by the creator. All souls are mine. The soul of the father, the soul of the father is mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul of the father is mine, but also the soul of the child of the parent is mine. When does the soul begin? God gives them a soul in the womb. And he says right here, the soul of the child, ultimately in the womb, is mine. Ezekiel 18.4, belongs to God. So one of the arguments is, well, uh, a woman can have an abortion because it's her body. No, it's not. God said right here, it is a distinct soul. It's a different soul from the father. And the soul belongs to that human being that God created distinct from their parent, whose life began at conception and who was made in the image of God at the point of conception. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him, for by God, all things were created, all things. And that includes little babies inside the womb from the point of conception. So God created everything. All humans are made in God's image. Number three, life begins at conception. I've referred to this a couple of times. Uh, this can be implied from several verses or illustrated from several verses, but Psalm 51, verse 5 is actually explicit in this. If you knew Hebrew, you could actually do the exegesis and the study of it and do the study of the word being used in the phraseology, very specific. And so Psalm 51 is David, King David, who was a believer. He loved God. He was a godly man. He was a sinner. He was fallen. He compromised. He committed adultery. He tried to hide it. He basically killed Bathsheba's husband, which amounts to murder. He tried to hide his sin for about six to nine months until the prophet of God came and confronted him to the face, exposed him, then finally was convicted by the Spirit of God, and then he wrote at least two psalms showing how he had a broken heart and how he's convicted of sin and how he was trying to hide behind his sin for months and months and months over this adultery. And then he's asking and begging that God would cleanse him and make him clean and white as snow again. And he admits that he's a sinner. So that's what Psalm 51 is. David is just saying, I am, I am a sinner. God, you know it. I am so pathetic. And I'm not a sinner just because of the deeds I do in this life. I was a sinner in my mother's womb. I was a sinner when I was born. And then he goes one step further and he says, in sin, my mother conceived me. What does that mean? That means David was acknowledging that even at the point of conception in the womb, he inherited a sin nature. That's what it means. So life begins at conception. And he had a sin nature even at 
conception. And so he needed salvation. He needed God to rescue him from his own sin, as we all do. And we know Jesus said that. You must be born again. You must be born again. You were born of your mother, sinful nature. You got to be born from above, spiritually. And that only happens through the gospel. So life begins at conception. God is in control of pregnancy. He's totally sovereign. Uh, the biblical point of view is that you don't get pregnant just scientifically. God is the giver of life. Therefore, even all the mechanisms and the processes of becoming pregnant are overseen by God Almighty, even down to the very biology and physiology of it all and uh, the egg being fertilized. God orchestrates all of that and oversees all of that. He is the author of all of that. And the Bible testifies with that by using phrases like God opened the womb. So Hannah, godly woman in the Old Testament, couldn't have a baby. It says her, her womb was closed. She, in other words, she couldn't get pregnant from her husband. She was a godly woman. She loved God, feared God, prayed to God, wanted to have a child, couldn't have a child. It made her sad. She wept. She prayed. She was becoming distressed over the matter. Why, was she, why couldn't she have a child? Because 1 Samuel 1.5 says, the Lord, Yahweh, closed her womb. Wow, why would God do that? Well, he's sovereign, he's totally in control, he knows what's best. If you're a woman here and you're, you want to have a child and you can't have a child, why is that? Ultimately, there are scientific reasons, but ultimately, the Lord has closed your womb. And it doesn't have to be forever and perpetually. Hannah prayed. It says God remembered Hannah and opened her womb, and she became pregnant. And that phrase is repeated throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is the one who opens the womb and closes the womb. He is ultimately in charge of a woman becoming with child, with child, with child, synonymous with being pregnant or conceiving. Number four, life in the womb is a unique person. Life in the womb uh, is not, so inside, the, it's not a fetus that belongs to the woman that's a part of her body, like it's a, just an additional organ in her body, like her spleen or her lungs. It's a human life that's totally distinct from the woman. It's clear from Scripture. Look at Genesis 25 if you have that passage there. So Genesis 25, Abraham just died at age whatever he was, 175. He had a son named Isaac. God loved Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. Uh, Rebekah becomes... Pregnant, verse 21 of Genesis 25, his wife conceived. Verse 22. So here, Rebecca is pregnant, and she's pregnant with twins. And notice the terminology of the Bible. It's not a fetus or a matter or her body or non-living tissue or non-viable organisms. While she's pregnant with the twins, verse 22 of Genesis 25 says, but the children, there it is. There are already children inside the womb. The children struggled together within her. That, that's just clear. That which is inside her womb, they are children. And they're struggling, the siblings. The sibling brothers are squabbling. Get used to it. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? And the Lord said to her, two nations. Notice the terminology being used. Not, a, not the fetus in your womb. It's they are children. And then God says there are two nations in your womb. They have identity, actually. Nations. What else? And God calls them, and there are two peoples that will come out of your body. So they're called children, nations, peoples. Verse 24, when her days uh, to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there will be 
there were twins in a room, so they're called twins, verse 25. And the first came forth red all over, verse 26. Uh, afterward, his brother came forth. So he's already called a brother while in the womb. So all the terminology is just personal attributes of human beings called children, people, nations. That's God's point of view. Life in the womb is a person. And they are unique. Go to Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament because this is amazing. Luke chapter 1, very long chapter, it describes the birth or actually the, the conception of John the Baptist in his mother's womb and also the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mary's womb. Starting in Luke chapter 1 in verse 5, it says, there was a man named Zechariah, Zechariah, he was a priest, he was married to Elizabeth, they were old, they never had kids, she couldn't get pregnant. She wanted to have children. Verse 7 says, they had no children. Why? Because she was barren. God had closed the womb. Then Zacharias, because he was a priest, was appointed, appointed to do temple duty, and so he did. So he went inside the temple. Everybody was waiting outside the temple while he did his duty. While in the temple, by himself, all of a sudden, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias the priest. Verse 12, Zacharias was troubled. He was afraid of that angel because that's what all humans are like when they see an angel from heaven. They are afraid, and rightfully so. He was troubled, verse 12, when he saw the angel. He was gripped by fear. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? He's been praying for his wife to become pregnant. That's what happened. Your, prayer, your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth, there it is, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Not Your wife Elizabeth will have a fetus inside of her. No, she will have a son. As a matter of fact, he's not just a, a child who's called a son with personal attributes. He even has a name before he is born. The angel says, his name shall be called John. The Bible does that. The Bible names babies while they are in the womb. They're named before they're even born. That happened with Jesus. God told Joseph, your wife-to-be is pregnant with a son that the Holy Spirit put there, and his name shall be Jesus. He already has a name inside the womb. And those of you, many of you, uh, who have become pregnant, and you got that baby in the womb, you already got a name. Because you know it's a person. And you know it's precious that God made them. This is the testimony of Scripture. Verse 15 is probably the most explicit of chapter 1 in Luke. For he will, so the angel's still talking, which means God is talking to Zacharias about this, about the child in the womb. He John, John the Baptist, in your room. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he was. And he will drink no wine or liquor. He'll be a Nazarite. And he will, get this, be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the mother's womb. That is amazing. The baby in the womb is a person. The life in the womb is a person. Same thing with Jesus in the rest of of the story. Life in the womb is a unique person. That was true of John. That was true of Jesus and every other child. Number five, every soul is immortal. Contrary to the great, profound, wisest man on earth, supposedly Stephen Hawking, who said that there is no life after death. Life after death is a fairy story, quote, end quote. The Bible says otherwise. Every human soul is immortal. What does that mean? That means they're not eternal. We're not eternal beings. We're immortal beings, meaning we will never die. We'll always, once we are born and created by God and brought into existence, we live forever, either in this life and then in a life to come forever. In other words, uh, when you die, you don't go into non-existence. You're not snuffed out. 
It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. This truth applies to every person in this building regardless of what you think of God. You can be an atheist. This This applies to you still. God created you, and when you die... And if you die in your sin, rejecting the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't go into non-existence. You don't come back again through reincarnation. You don't get another shot. You can't be saved after you're dead. If you reject Jesus Christ in your last breath, you go into eternity. You go before the throne of Almighty God, the judge. And you will live forever. And someday he's actually going to give you a resurrection body, a physical eternal resurrection body, John chapter 5, that you will live in forever in torment being judged by God because you willfully, knowingly rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. So I already referenced John 5 there. Every soul is immortal, lives on forever. Jesus said that, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I, Jesus, say to you. Truly, truly, double amen. Amen, amen. It's true if Jesus said it. It's really true if he says, truly, I say to you. It's triply true if Jesus, almighty God who knows everything, Savior of the world, says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is undeniable. I don't care what people think. I don't care about modern science. This is true. Well, what is it, Jesus? Well, an hour is coming, and this is about the end. An hour is coming. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The spiritually dead, people who don't believe in God will hear the gospel. Boom, they'll be made alive by faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Furthermore, verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so the Father has given the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Jesus is the judge. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in the future in which all who are in the tombs, every human being that dies in all of human history. It's a sweeping statement. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Whose voice? Jesus. He is the judge. When a soul dies, it goes before the throne of Jesus Christ, who is judge in him alone. He has all authority. He has all sovereignty. What will happen? Well, that time people will come forth. There will be a resurrection. This is at the end of the age. Believers will be raised up from the dead and given a resurrection body that in glorious, perfect, that they will live in heaven with God forever. But also unbelievers who die in their sin, rejecting the gospel of Christ, will also be raised from the dead and their soul will be united to an eternal resurrection physical body in which they will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorious resurrection body and he will give them their eternal sentence of condemnation. That's what Jesus is saying right here very clearly. Those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, the good deed is believing in Christ and his gospel. Those who committed the evil deed, what is that? That is rejecting Jesus Christ, clearly from John chapter 6, the next chapter. And they will experience a resurrection of judgment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And you can look at Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11, another testimony from Scripture that when someone dies, they don't go into non-existence. When you die, you are conscious, you are alert, you're accountable to God, and you will live for, with Him forever in eternity, if you believe him, and if you reject him, you will live forever in condemnation. Frightening, but it, it's reality. That's not a fairy tale. That's, that's frightening. It's glorious for us who know him. It's the saddest thing for those we know who don't know Christ. That's their fate. It's real. 
And then Romans 8, uh, 29 to 30 is, is as specific as can be. You know, life doesn't, life doesn't begin at viability like they try to tell. Well, after the 20th week, maybe around week 26, 27, uh, we have the viability of life. Or life begins. Or I could quote the former senator of California, Barbara Boxer, who said on the Senate floor, that is paid for by the taxpayers, publicly, that it is recorded, who was an advocate and pro-abortionist herself, and viciously so, her argument was, a fetus is not a baby until the mother takes it home from the hospital. That's a quote. Absolutely contrary to Scripture. Life doesn't begin in the womb. I don't know if that surprises you or not. When does life begin? Actually, it begins in eternity past in the mind of God. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. This applies to every person here who's a Christian. Uh, you didn't just begin in this life. God foreknew you in eternity past. He knew you. Uh, the word there, for those whom he foreknew, okay, the, uh, the Greek word there is has to do with God's knowledge and the love of God. So he, he, he knew you beforehand. He Literally, he loved you beforehand, and it's talking about in the past. In eternity past, before creation, if you're a Christian, God set his love upon you very specifically. It's amazing. I am not an afterthought. The triune God of the universe thought about me explicitly, specifically, by name, in eternity past, and set his saving love upon me. That's what foreknowledge means, to foreknew. For those whom God foreknew in eternity past, so that was his first action. He foreknew me. This, this cliff, pathetic, sinner person. I'm going to create him, I'm going to save him. Then, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's the word horizon, horazo. That means to mark out, mark out very distinctly, to mark it out. Uh, this cliff, I'm going to mark him out. I'm going to mark him out with the boundaries of my love and affection. And I'm going to follow up on that. I'm going to protect him. I'm going to secure him. I'm going to call him. I'm going to woo him. I'm going to expose him to the truth of the gospel. I'm going to save him. That's what it means. Horazo, predestined. Very specific word. So God, in eternity past, he knew me. He set his love upon me. And then he marked me out for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's predestination. That I might be predestined and conformed to the image of his son so that I might be like Jesus ultimately in the future so that I could join God's family by adoption so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So he foreknew me, he predestined me. Well, then what did he do? Verse 30, and these, those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, now he's moving from eternity past to the present life. So during this life, during history, God called me. He didn't call me to be a preacher or anything. Called. It means he sovereignly, specifically decided to woo me with the gospel, convict me of my sin with the Holy Spirit, and to save me. That's what called means in the New Testament. It happens in this life. He was calling me for 19 years, using people and the gospel and conviction and the Holy Spirit. Keep wooing and wooing. Man, it took 19 years. Boy, this guy is hard-headed. Calling always leads to salvation. So I was foreknown and predestined in eternity past, marked out to be saved by God, and then in this life for 19 years, he hounded me and hounded me, and then he finally called me, and it culminated, and those whom he called, he also justified. Boom! That is the moment of instantaneous salvation. That's when I responded to the gospel with repentance and faith. 
and I was born again. And it happens in a moment of time. And it's a one-time event. And God is the one that does it. I was justified. I was declared not guilty. I was adopted into the family of God. I was reconciled. I was forgiven. I was given eternal life. I was made a citizen of heaven. I was transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so were you if you were a Christian. That's all that happened the moment you were justified. It's amazing. So right now I'm justified. I've been foreknown, predestined, called, and justified. Well, is that it? No, it keeps going. It's good stuff. Then you have all of this life after you're justified. God sanctifies you, and it culminates in glorification. That's the end of verse 30. He, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And it's spoken in the verbs are in past tense, meaning it is a done deal. It hasn't happened yet, but it's in the past tense of the verbs used, meaning it is guaranteed. If God justifies you and saves you in this life, it is guaranteed he will glorify you in the future. That is awesome. Past tense, done deal, secured in the eternal mind of God. So life doesn't just begin in the womb, and life isn't just about the here and now. God's definition of life begins in eternity past, determined by God Almighty, and culminates in the future in eternity forevermore that never ends with God. It's awesome. Number six, God commands us to protect the weak. Us, I mean Christians. Well, it even goes beyond that. Are unbelievers commanded to protect the weak? Absolutely. Romans 13 is clear. 1 Peter is clear. The book of Proverbs is clear. God ordains kings and leaders around the earth. God ordains governments around the world really for the purpose of protecting the innocent, protecting the innocent. Not morally innocent, but practically innocent. Innocent citizens, those who haven't violated particular laws. That's why God establishes government. They don't. God gives them the sword to wield the death penalty or whatever else is needed. Romans 13 God doesn't give them the sword to wield in vain. God gives government and ordains them to protect the innocent. That is the main job of government. It's not to build highways and bridges. It's not to uh, create public schools and give them a secular worldview education and give them a hot breakfast in the morning and at lunch and bus rides to school. That, that is not the purpose of government in the Bible, and it's not the purpose of government even in our Constitution. Primary... Pri the priority, number one, is government is supposed to protect human life. And their laws are supposed to be enacted accordingly. Protecting life. That's what I should expect from any ruler, any government, any legislation, any law. At its heart, does it protect innocent life? It's supposed to. That's just the world that God commands and expects of them to do that. And then let alone the Christians and the believing community, we also are supposed to protect innocent life. Just a couple of verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul, he's reminding Christians, the end of his letter, now we urge you, brethren, there are different categories of people in your midst. There, there are strong Christians, don't need a whole lot of managing guidance. Actually, they're supposed to, and there are leaders who are supposed to provide leadership. But then there are different other different demographics and categories of people that you need to give special attention to. And those are the, the ones that are, they need help. These are the kind of people Jesus helped. Now forget the Pharisees and said they're self-sufficient. They know it all. They don't need my help. And Jesus spent his time with the lowly and the, the weak and the pathetic and the sick. We need to do the same. Paul says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, the, the weak-hearted, the emotionally weak. The emotionally weak, that's, that's beautiful. It's very specific. Encourage those who are emotionally weak. Then it talks about physical, and help the weak. Help the weak, this is a different word. This also could be an emphasis on physical weakness. 
Help those who are vulnerable. Help those who can't help themselves. You ever heard people say, God helps those who help themselves. That is absolutely contrary to the Bible. Help the weak. Help those who can't help themselves and make it a priority. Help the needy. Help the vulnerable. Help those who can't protect themselves. Who's the weakest, most vulnerable demographic in our society? It's babies. And even more vulnerable, it's babies who aren't even born yet. Because they are under threat and under siege from our society. Wholesale slaughter. Genocide, literally. God said, no, we should help the weak. We need to help the weak. We need to help babies. We need to protect babies. Jesus said the same thing. His attitude towards Matthew 18, his view of children. The metaphor he used, he embraced children, let the children come to me. He holds the children, uses them as an illustration. Then he says, uh, woe to the one that causes any one of these little children to stumble. Woe to anybody that hurts these children, hurts a child. Better that they'd never been born. Better that they had a stone mill wrapped around their neck and dropped to the bottom of the sea than they hurt. That's Jesus' view of children. We need to help the weak and the vulnerable. Those inside the womb are the weakest and most vulnerable, precious babies of all. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Last verse in the book of Jonah. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the last verse in Jonah, God tells Jonah the prophet, hey, go preach to the Ninevites, those pagans, and call them to repentance that I might forgive them. And Jonah says, no way. I hate them. I don't want them to repent. I'm not going. I know you're forgiving God, and I don't want your forgiveness extended to those people. So I'm out of here. And he runs the other way. So then God has to chasten Jonah and then draw him back. And then finally, reluctantly, Jonah goes, preaches saving truth to Nineveh. And basically, there's a wholesale repentance. Everybody is coming. There's a revival. They believe. They repent. They go to the the creator asking for forgiveness. God grants national forgiveness. And then at the very end, and Jonah's mad about it. Crybaby, pouting, moping. And then the last verse, God has to rebuke Jonah and says, man, Jonah, what is your problem? I, I didn't want to destroy Nineveh. One of the reasons I didn't want to wipe out the entire city of Nineveh is because of the 120,000 people who live there who don't know their right hand from their left hand. Well, who's that? That's a baby. I'm not going to wipe out an entire pagan nation just because the babies who live there. That shows us the heart of God and his attitude towards children. It's all over the Bible. God commands us to protect the weak. Number seven, God gives and takes life. Job 1.21. Job, no, nobody on planet Earth had a life of trials worse than Job. Very few people. And yet, because Job was a righteous man, loved God, trusted God, he continued to be faithful to God despite all that happened to him, all that was taken away from him, his entire family being murdered or killed. And as soon as all of his children were killed, his response wasn't curse God and die. His response was, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Job knew God was the giver of life. God gives life, he takes life. No human being has the right to take life in abortion. That's murder. The only time life should be taken is when God grants it, and it's his will. Psalm 139, 16, the Spirit of God has made me, said the psalmist, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Oh, that's Job, Job 33, 4. But in Psalm 139, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and your book were written 
all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So God even knows every day that we're going to live. He knows how long we're going to live. He's the giver of life. He sustains life. And then finally, number eight, God works all things together for good. We heard that earlier from Becky, so many illustrations that God works all things together for good, even bad things, even horrific things, even sinful things. This verse doesn't mean that God says sinful things are okay, because they're not. They are evil, heinous, wicked from his point of view. But nothing overrides his plans. So sinful, wicked human beings can do all the dastardly deeds they want to do, but they're not going to thwart God's perfect will, ultimately. And so he just keeps working all things together for good. He works good things to good and bad things to good. This is encouraging for the Christian. This is a special promise to Christians. So if you've ever struggled with this, I mean, I had on a Sunday morning on more than one occasion, I've had people come in, can I talk to you, Pastor? And we're talking about should they have an abortion or not? This is the real world. So if you've had an abortion, didn't know what to do about it, and you're a Christian, still have guilt, you can ask God for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. By the way, the death and resurrection of Christ is the only thing that is going to forgive you. But if you do ask for forgiveness, you will get absolute, total forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And as Becky told us earlier, I believe if you're a Christian, you'll see that baby in heaven. It's going to be an awesome reunion. If you have more questions, you can go to the Real Options table at the end of the service. I'm going to just close with this, with a question in light of the political volatility and conversation that this issue of abortion is today. People can't even seem to talk about it rationally or with their emotions under control. But I do have a question, and that is, or a few questions, listen to these questions carefully. Why do people tolerate abortion? They don't do it, they don't get one, they just tolerate it. so-called Republicans, they tolerate the abortion agenda of the Democrats sometimes. Or just normal people. They tolerate it. They don't speak up against it. They tolerate it. Why do people tolerate abortion? Question two, why do people get abortions? Well, a lot of different reasons. Question number three, why do people promote abortion? Placards out on the street, marching for abortion rights. Question number four, why do people legislate for abortion? These are the lawmakers. This is a step up. By the way, if you've been paying attention to these questions, they go from bad to worse. Why do people legislate for abortion? And then finally, number five, why do people do abortions? We've got some abortion doctors who've been doing it for 30, 40 years, have become millionaires, mega millionaires from killing babies, terminating the life of a precious human soul made in God's image. So there's greater, greater accountability, these gradations of levels. God is the judge, but God gives us an answer. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, Pharaoh gave a decree to kill all newborn baby boys. Same thing, basically abortion. And the Jewish midwives refused to do it. Why? They refused to kill the baby boys because, quote, they feared the Lord. That's the answer. When you make the decision to go through an abortion, ultimately, you're lacking in a proper biblical fear of God. And then Romans 3.18, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. 
in that litany of verses that he puts together in Romans 3 of, of sinners who mock God, hate God, resist God, reject the gospel, uh, bask in immorality and propagate it to others. And then he culminates by saying from the Old Testament, it's a quote, he says, they do not have a fear of God. There it is. It's not a political issue. It's not an ignorance or educational issue. It is primarily a spiritual issue, a biblical issue, a theological issue, a God issue, a life and death truth issue. And at bottom line, it is they don't fear God. So even if you have a Christian who's considering an abortion and they're seriously considering that, at some point they're not fearing God and you've got to talk to them, give them biblical truth so they get to a point where they can fear God properly. They might be fearing the consequences of their sin, right? So they're fearing that more. Oh, what are my parents going to think? What's the Christian church going to think? What's the pastor going to think? And so they don't fear God more than they fear something else. And at least with a Christian, you have a basis by which to talk to them, pray for them, have the Spirit of God illumine their understanding, encourage them, minister to them, and praise God of the testimony we were given earlier that a very high percentage of these women who go into these clinics getting this kind of godly counsel make the right decision. Because of biblical truth, also I believe because of prayer and the love that they extend to them. It's awesome. The gospel of Jesus Christ is at the foundation of it all. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, another Lord's Day, an opportunity to gather with the saints in the local church. I thank you for all the churches that are meeting around our city and the world. So many faithful pastors, faithful saints ministering but also lifting your name high, proclaiming the truth of the Bible, being a witness. Continue to bless all of those people and all of their ministries. And thank you that your word is totally sufficient. It speaks to every issue, every issue, even the volatile ones in our day that people are afraid to talk about. You are crystal clear in your word, and we thank you for that tremendous truth. And God, I thank you for the grace that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel uh, that can even... Comfort, restore, heal the hearts of those who have things of sin and shame in their past, whether it's uh, immorality or even an abortion. And you're just an amazing, gracious, saving God. And so we commit them to you. We pray for them. We pray for healing. We pray that they find refuge and healing only in you, the gracious Savior, the wonderful physician. We pray it all to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.